At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all please be seated and good morning. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember a movie, I don't know if you've seen a movie that made a big impression on me. It was several years ago it was called, and it is called, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, I'll never forget whenever Bokeh and I first watched that movie several years ago now about slavery in America in the 1860s, and that movie, I think more than any I've ever seen in my life, made a deeply visceral impression on me. And yet, and yet the thing that really gets me about slavery in this country, when I think about American slavery, the thing that really gets to me more than anything else is what happened after the Emancipation Proclamation, what happened after those slaves were awarded their freedom, what happened after those gates were thrown open and these slave families were given 40 acres and a mule and they were told to go out into the world and make a life for themselves. What blows my mind is what happened after. Because what happened after speaks volumes about the human condition. So many of those former slaves, not all, but many, or maybe even most, so many of them, after they left their slave masters, after they ventured out there into the world, they attempted to go back. Back into the life of slavery. Back into that old situation which uh, they had been liberated out of. Back into that oppressive life that they had always known. Why? Why did they do that? By the way, it was no different in the Old Testament with the Jews as they were coming out of Egypt. They did the same thing, didn't they? Here they are in Egypt, suffering under the iron-fisted, brutal dictatorship of the Pharaoh, suffering from back-breaking slave labor that they were forced to do. And then finally, after years, decades of slavery, God raises up a liberator. God finally raises up Moses as a deliverer of the people. And finally, the people are given their freedom. They leave Egypt and venture out out into the free world. And after just a couple of days, what happens? They turn to their leader. They look at Moses and they say, "Uh, Moses, we want to go back. Can we please turn around and go back into Egypt? I mean, at least there, 
we were able to eat onions and leeks and garlic. At least there, we had graves in which we could bury our dead. But out here on this road we're traveling on, what do we have? Nothing. The children of Israel look at their leader and they say, we want to go back into Egypt. We prefer slavery over freedom. What I'm saying to you this morning is that that is indicative of the human condition. We prefer slavery over freedom. And the question that I have for us this morning is, why? Why? And the answer, the answer is a deep truth that is found this morning both in our gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5 and in our epistle lesson that August just read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, because in both of those passages we find the same truth, and it is this. True freedom is difficult. True freedom is hard. Truly living like a free man or a woman or a boy or a girl is hard. More often than not, it is scary and difficult, which is why St. Paul looks at us this morning, which is why he looked at those Jesus followers in ancient Corinth, and he says, even though what you really need to be eating is meat, all your system can handle right now is milk. The Christians at Corinth, Paul is saying, are like three-year-olds who need to stop drinking milk from the baby bottle. They need to be weaned off it, but they can't. I'm sure I'm not the only parent in the room who remembers or knows or is experiencing what that is like. Some of you are doing that at this very moment. Uh, what it's like to try to wean your babies off of that baby bottle. I remember those days trying to transition from the milk bottle to the sippy cup, the milk bottle with the soft nipple and the delicious milk inside to transition from that to that water bottle, yuck, with that hard thing that hurts the baby's lips. I remember those days. I'll never forget them. That sippy cup has only water in it. Why? Because the toddler, the baby, the two-year-old, the one-and-a-half-year-old, the three-year-old, they need to stop eating milk, to stop drinking milk, and they need to start eating real food. But what happens so often so often you bring that sippy cup, the water cup, the water bottle, you bring that to the child, maybe as you're tucking them in at night, maybe as you're reading them a bedtime story, and the child begs for the bottle. The bottle, daddy, please, the bottle. I will never forget those days. I will never forget that. See, it is not easy for a child to be weaned off of the milk bottle. And yet, what happens if that baby is not forced to mature? They'll stay babyish their whole life. They'll stay immature for the rest of their lives. But that milk bottle, it's so comfy, so safe, so easy, just like it was for those slaves in Egypt, or so they thought. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who is more free? Who is more free, a three-and-a-half-year-old who's still attached to that milk bottle or a three-and-a-half-year-old who's learned to eat veggies and oatmeal and fresh fruits and, yes, meat. We know that the three-and-a-half-year-old who's still demanding the milk bottle is the one who's in bondage. And yet, it's so easy to stay 
in that old place of comfort. You see, true freedom is hard. It's difficult, and yet it is true freedom that we are called to in Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus says what he says in Matthew chapter 5 today. He says that this Sermon on the Mount that he's been giving, we've been looking at it for the last couple of Sundays, Jesus says that this Sermon on the Mount is a new law. It's not a law of slavery. It is a law of freedom. And for the next few minutes this morning, what I want us to do together, what I want us to do is to think about this law of freedom. This law of freedom that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, you might think of it as a set of house rules. House rules. In my previous ministry in Tyler, Texas, we started a new worshiping community on the fourth floor of the Grelling Spence building of Christ Church in Tyler, Texas. It was kind of like a launch team because we were hoping to start a, a second campus a little down the road. And basically, the Epiphany community, as we were called, had full reign of the entire fourth floor of this building. We had entire reign to the fourth floor, the youth space, the kitchen, the hallway, the classrooms, the bathrooms, the big room where the liturgy took place, etc. And at one point, we started to notice that some of our kids were getting out of hand. They were running down the hallway like hellions. They were hiding behind couches and eating donuts in secret. They were jumping on top of the pool table and wreaking all kinds of havoc. And one of the ideas that we came up with is, well, maybe we should post some house rules on the wall, house rules for the church, some do's and don'ts of how we and our children ought to behave in the house of God. Wasn't a bad idea. I want to look with you just for the next few minutes at the house rules of Jesus. And what I want you to see this morning is that these house rules are so radically different from the rules of the world. They're counterintuitive. They take things that we think we know, some assumptions that we think we have, and they turn everything upside down. I want to look at two words this morning, just two words with you. And the first word is the word altar. Altar. We have an altar slash table, but it is an altar in this room this morning. The first word is the word altar. Jesus says in verse 23 of the gospel lesson this morning, when you are offering your gifts on the altar, remember that your brother, remember that, uh, and if, if you remember that your brother or sister has offended you, drop everything, Jesus says. Drop everything and be reconciled. Be reconciled to your brother or sister. Jesus looks at us and he says, don't you dare come to this altar. Don't you dare even think about coming to this altar until you've reestablished peace and shalom with your brothers and sisters. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that this altar is not a private thing. This altar is not simply about me and Jesus. It's not about your own personal Jesus. No, this altar is about the community. It's about a new family. It's about a web of relationships that are centered on Christ. But friends, I want us to listen a bit more deeply this morning, a little more deeply to what Jesus says about this altar and the brothers and sisters who gather around it. Because what Jesus says is this. When you sin against your brother or sister, seek them out 
and be reconciled to them. Wait, is that what Jesus said? Is this actually what Jesus said? When you sin against your brother or sister, seek them out and be reconciled to them? Is that what he says? No. <laughs> actually, that is not what he says. Now, that would make sense, would it not? That would make perfect sense. I mean, surely it makes sense that if I'm the one who sins, I should be the one to go out there and seek reconciliation, right? I mean, suppose spouse A is mean to spouse B. Whose job is it to go and apologize? Spouse A, surely, right? I mean, that's what seems normal and natural to us. Seems like common sense. If you sin against me, it is your job, not mine, to patch up the relationship. And yet that is not what Jesus says. It's not what Jesus says. What Jesus actually says is crazy. He gives us a counterintuitive new law that challenges your assumptions. What Jesus basically says is this. When your brother or sister sins against you, I want you to seek them out and be reconciled. That is kind of crazy. Anytime you realize that there's a relational issue between you and someone else, when you realize that actually, when you realize that actually you are not the sinner, but you're the sinny, guess what? It is your job to seek that person out and to repair the damage. What? Come on, Matt. Come on, Jesus. Surely it's his job to come and apologize to me. Jesus, is, Jesus says, well, yeah, that is his job, but your job is not to worry about him. Your job is to worry about you. Wow. Your job is to keep your own side of the street clean, to control yourself, and not to worry about her. Do you remember that little tidbit that happens at the end of John's gospel? Here's Peter and another disciple. It's the disciple that Jesus loved. That's what it says. Here's Peter and this other disciple at the end of John's gospel. Peter is looking at Jesus and this other disciple, and he's noticing that they're having this intimate conversation, that they're very close, and Peter starts to get jealous. Peter's like, Lord, what's up with this man? Jesus looks at Peter, and do you remember what he says? He looks at Peter, and he says, if it's, if it's my will for him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Jesus says. Jesus looks at Peter and is like, Peter, don't worry about him. Worry about yourself. You can't control him. There's only one thing, Peter, that maybe, just maybe, you actually can control, and that is yourself. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. That, dear friends, is true freedom. I'm trying to preach a sermon this morning about freedom. That is true freedom, and that is what Jesus is imparting to us in the Sermon on the Mount, if my brother sins against me, I cannot control him. I can only, maybe just maybe on a good day with the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe I can control myself. 
I can look for ways to promote peace. Do you see how upside down Jesus' new law is? Do you see how counterintuitive the Sermon on the Mount is? It's so different. It's the reverse of what we would normally expect. It's the reverse of what we see in our ordinary lives. It's the reverse of what we see in the political uh, situation and on the news, is it not? It's the reverse of what we would naturally expect. It runs against the grain of our ordinary thinking. It's subversive. It runs against the MO, the modus operandi, of the world. And speaking of the world's MO, I want to draw your attention this morning to a second word, a second and final word, and that is the word wages. In 1 Corinthians 3 this morning, Paul says that the one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor that they do. It's kind of a weird passage, and as I was meditating on it this last week, it sort of began to blow my mind as I went deeper and deeper, because what Paul is saying here is so upside down, it's so different from the MO of the world, our capitalistic world in which your value as a human being depends on what you produce. Depends on how productive you are. I wonder if there's any salespeople in the room. I know that there are. Your value depends on how productive you are and how much you produce. You see, Paul is saying something crazy different. Paul says that you will receive wages according to the labor you perform, right? So here's one worker, and their job is to plant seeds. Here's another worker, and their job is to water the soil. Paul says, hey, don't even worry about how many plants grow up and produce fruit. Don't even worry about that, Paul says. Let's say you're the planter, and here you are planting your seeds, and you're doing everything you're supposed to do. But after a few weeks, you notice that actually the plants aren't coming up. The plants aren't growing. They're not sprouting. Paul says, hey, don't worry about it. It's so weird. Paul says, do not worry about it. It is not your job to cause the plants to grow and to cause them to bear fruit. That is not your job. That is someone else's job. It's not your job. It is God's job. Do you see how different that is from the logic of the world? That's so different from the world's law, so different from the way that the world operates we live in a world in which if you don't produce, guess what? You're fired. But Paul says, it is different in the kingdom of God. It is different in the kingdom of God. Your worth does not depend on your productivity. And when you plant those seeds, it is not to gain security for yourself. No, Paul says. Paul says, you're already safe. You are already secure. You are already free. Do you see how this is the way of freedom? I can, y'all are staring at me with some interesting looks this morning. I can tell that you're like, huh? Really? Yes. This is so different from the ways of the world. Paul says we don't work in order to make money. We don't work in order to gain security. We don't work in order to keep our job. No, you're already safe. You're already secure. The work of planting seeds has a completely different motivation, he says. That work 
is motivated by love. Think about that. By joy. By peace. Not the need to gain security, to make money, to keep my job. Do you see? The kingdom of God is so different from the kingdom of the world. The house rules of Jesus are so different, so much better than the rules of the world. So, two words, alter. Whose job is it to seek reconciliation? Yours, regardless of whether or not you are the offender or the offendee. And secondly, wages. What is your motivation to work? Not to keep your job, not to gain security, but because you love this world and you love its God. A new law, a new freedom, a new law of love. New house rules, rules for living a life of love and joy and peace like that baby getting weaned off of the milk bottle, Jesus never told us that it would be easy. True freedom is not easy. No one said it would be easy, but he did say it would be good. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.